you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter. We're going to be looking this morning at the second half of a story at the opening of John chapter 5, the healing of a man at the pool in Jerusalem. And so this morning we will look at verses 9 through 18, having looked last Lord's Day at the first nine verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That as we study your word, we would learn more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing more and more about Jesus, we would come to trust him more and more. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Sometimes we miss things in plain sight. Perhaps you've had an experience that is similar to mine often. It often happens when I am looking for my keys. I need my keys to be able to get in the car and to leave, and I, I can't find them, and I go from room to room and surface to surface, getting a little bit more upset with each passing moment, saying, where are my keys? Who took my keys? Who hid my keys on me? Where are they? And it's often at this point that my wife will reach over to the kitchen countertop and say, you mean these keys? The ones that have been sitting here out in the open all along? And I will say, yeah, those are it. Give them to me. I just didn't see them. 
I'm sure the similar thing has happened to you when you search for something or you look over something that is in plain sight. And I think those of us that are in church this morning need to be reminded of this. Because it is possible to, to be in a place that is all about Jesus, talks about Jesus, and yet to miss Jesus. The continuation of this story reminds us of that. Jesus the Messiah was right in front of the most religious people of the day, and they missed him. Jesus had healed a man, and he was so glad to be healed that he missed the one who healed him. This story opens our eyes to Jesus as we see the mistakes that others make. And so as John unfolds the rest of this story, I would like us to look at this by looking at three people, or rather three groups of people. First, we have the man who was healed and his reaction to Jesus. Secondly, we have the Jews. And then thirdly, and most importantly, we have Jesus himself. The man, the Jews, and Jesus. Well, you remember where we are here, if you were with us last week. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast. And while he is at this feast, while he is in Jerusalem, he sees an invalid, a man who is likely paralyzed. The man had been paralyzed for 38 years, almost four decades, John tells us. And as a result, he was miserable and frustrated. And yet, simply by speaking a word, Jesus heals him and changes his life forever. Then Jesus tells him to take up his mat and walk. Now, that detail will become important in just a minute. This bed that we see here in verse 8 and again later is simply a, a mat of straw that has been bound together. It was something that the man had put together and could be rolled up or folded up so that he could sit or lie upon it rather than lying upon the ground itself so that he wouldn't get all dirty from the ground or have uh, a rock sticking up, hitting him in the leg. He would lay that down so that he could lay on top of it. And the very fact that he could carry this mat was a cause for rejoicing. It meant that he was healed. And so what does the man do next? Well, he leaves this area where the pool is, and presumably he goes home. He had no more need to sit by the pool, no more need to wait for healing. He was made right by the word of Jesus. Now, John doesn't give us any details about this man, except that he had an invalid condition. Likely, again, that he was paralyzed. But I want you to imagine what he should be thinking. Imagine if someone came to you and said, I'm going to pay off the mortgage on your home. Or if they said, you know what? All of your children are going to college tuition free. I've covered all of the costs of college. 
Or if they said, you know that illness that has plagued you for a very long time? Here is a medicine that will make you whole again. Everything that's wrong to you, whether it's an inability or migraines or cancer or a bad heart, whatever it is, gone forever because of this medicine. Now, you'd want to know who that person was if you didn't, wouldn't you? You'd want to thank them properly for changing your life. And we might have assumed that's what this man did until we get to verse 13 here of our text. The Pharisees asked him who had done this for him. We'll see why in just a moment. And he didn't even know. He didn't even know Jesus' name. He hadn't stopped to thank him. He'd never asked Jesus his name. 38 years as an invalid. And he couldn't spend five minutes finding out who Jesus is. Think about all the questions he could have asked. Why me? Why did you heal me? How did you do this? By what power did this come about? What do I do now that I'm healed? Would you perhaps come and meet someone I know who's also suffering? Maybe you could heal them as well. All of these would be logical questions that this man could have, should have asked. But we know from the text that he didn't. He just went down his way. Now, I want you to remember also how different this is from others who have had meetings with Jesus. Do you remember the woman at the well? Jesus didn't physically heal her, but he did reach into her life and change her. She was so struck by her meeting with Jesus that she had to go and to tell everyone else who Jesus was. She not only wanted to know who Jesus was, she had to tell others. Do you remember the royal official at the end of chapter 4? Jesus healed his son, and when he was on his way home and his servants told him about this, he not only believed, he had to tell all of the rest of his family about Jesus. But this man, he needs to get on with his life. It's better now. But how changed could he really be if he doesn't even think to ask Jesus his name? Now, before we get too critical of this man, we need to think about that this is the way that most people ignore what Jesus has done for them. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. If not for Jesus, no one would have life, no one would have ability, no one would even have existence. And yet, most people simply ignore that fact. If you asked someone, if you went out and about today in your neighborhood and you asked them, why can you breathe? Or if you said, why does the sun shine in the sky each day? They wouldn't think to give honor and credit to Jesus. They'd come up with some other kind of explanation. Perhaps a natural explanation, or if it related to them, they would explain how they had done something, or what they had done, how that was effective. But even for Christians, we are so quick to give ourselves credit for the good that is in our lives. 
Do you thank Jesus for the blessings that he gives you every single day? Don't miss Jesus because you're focused on the blessings in your life. But there's another thing that we're told about this man. It's when Jesus meets him again after the man has been confronted by the Pharisees. And it's a fascinating exchange. Jesus finds him in the temple and engages him again. And the way John writes this, that Jesus found him in verse 14, there is a sense in which Jesus has sought him out. This is not an accidental encounter. Jesus is not through with this man yet. He finds him and he begins an interchange with him again. Jesus tells him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, the first part of Jesus' statement is not surprising. We expect Jesus to say that. See, you're well. Be encouraged. Be happy. Get on with your life. It's the second part that gets us. Jesus says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now what's Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying that his disability is directly related to some kind of sin? And if he sins again after the same fashion, that he'll become even more disabled? Is what Jesus saying something the equivalent of, listen, you know that what you did made it so you couldn't walk. Knock it off or your arms won't work also. Something will be even worse will come upon you. And does that mean that people today who get sick or who have disabilities are somehow secretly sinning to blame for what is wrong with them? Now, we know from the scriptures that there is not a direct line from suffering to sin. It is not that every sickness or illness is the direct cause of some sin in a person's life. First of all, we have the entire book of Job to help us with that. As Job's friends give their advice, telling Job to confess his sin that he does not have because God has brought these maladies upon him as a test. But actually, later in the Gospel of John, in the ninth chapter, Jesus makes this explicit. His disciples come upon a blind man and they ask Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Obviously, someone is to blame for his blindness. Who is it? And Jesus says, no, he is blind that the glory of God may be revealed. Jesus refuses to blame sin for this blindness. So we have to be careful as we think about suffering here, but... That doesn't mean that sin doesn't bring consequences upon us. Sinful behavior can have devastating effects on your health. You know that if you've ever been around someone who has acted in a way that is sinful and it has caused them to be ill or to have diseases or to have difficulties. Sinful behavior can destroy your finances. It's no surprise that gamblers and cheats and lazy people have not two pennies to rub together. Sinful behavior can affect your relationships. If you lie to someone and about someone, you're going to have difficult relationships. But that doesn't mean in every instance that this is a punishment for sin. Do you see the difference? 
Sin brings pain and death, but it's not always a punishment. So why does Jesus give this warning to the man? Jesus seems to know that the man knew that his condition had come about at least partly as a result of his sin. Again, we don't have all the details. Perhaps many, many years ago, this man had attacked someone in anger and been hurt, and that was the cause of his paralysis. Perhaps the man had abused substances, and that was the cause of his paralysis. We just don't know. But it does seem that Jesus is aware that this man knows his sin is at least partly to blame. And Jesus also knows that the man is tempted right now to focus only on his physical need and healing. We understand that because the man was healed and he left and didn't even ask Jesus who he was. As far as the man is concerned, everything's great now. There's nothing more to worry about. And Jesus is saying to him, you're in great danger. Something worse will come if you persist in this. Now, what could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Well, I'll tell you. To come under the judgment of God would be worse. And I think that's what our Lord is alluding to here. He wants this man to be aware and not to miss the reality of his need and the reality of the one who provides for that need simply because he's feeling better today. Now think about it. If you could have relief today from all of your pain and suffering, if all of it would go away, if your health would be perfect, if finances were never a problem again, would you be satisfied with that? If so, you would be missing your greatest need. Now, pain and suffering is real. But don't focus so much on your circumstances that you miss Jesus and your need of him. Next, we come to a second group. John tells us in verse 10 that the Jews spoke to this man. Now, when John uses this word, the Jews, he does not mean all Israelites. He doesn't even use this word the way we might to refer to people ethnically. He uses this word to refer specifically to the religious leaders of the day. Specifically, we would know them as the Pharisees. Over and over again, John will talk about the Jews, and he means the Pharisees. Now, occasionally, he will lump the Sadducees in with the Pharisees if he's talking about an issue of politics or of ruling authority. But when he's speaking about religious authorities interacting with Jesus, he means the Pharisees. And this group allows us to see another way of missing Jesus. Now, remember what happened. A man who had been paralyzed for 38 years had just been healed. Now, he'd been paralyzed so long and he'd gone so often to the pools that everyone must have known him, especially the leaders of Jerusalem. You can imagine that they had been asked and had offered to pray for this man over the years. 
that he would be comforted, that he would be healed, that he would be provided for. He's not unknown to them. And this is important. Because John records very vividly in verse 10 their interaction with him. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now this is an excellent translation. But to give you a little bit of the color of the Greek behind this translation, you need to know that the very first word out of their mouth is Sabbath. Now I want you to picture what's going on here. This man who has been an invalid for four decades is healed and he's walking and they're running up behind him yelling, Sabbath! Sabbath! What are you doing? Why are you carrying that bed? It's the Sabbath. That is their reaction to what's going on. They know who he is. They should be shocked. They should be thankful. They should be wanting to carry him. But no. All they can see is that he's carrying a mat on the Sabbath. And that is not to be done, they say. Now, John has prepared us for this because at the end of verse 9, he reminds us that this healing was done on a Sabbath day. And we will see more controversies in John's gospel between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath and even specifically about healings on the Sabbath. So what is going on here? Why are they so upset? Well, they are telling him that it is not lawful to do what he's doing, that he is sinning, that he is breaking the law. And the presumed reference here is to the fourth commandment. But as we look at this, how can that be? Because Jesus is the one who told him to take up the mat. Is Jesus sinning by telling him to do that? That obviously can't be the case knowing who Jesus is, but they certainly think so. That's why they ask in verse 12, who told you to pick up your mat? And why in verse 18 they say, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath by telling another to do this. Now, perhaps we might say it's just they don't understand that Jesus is here now. And now that Jesus is here, the law doesn't count anymore. Don't you know that you don't need an Old Testament? All you need is the New Testament. Just Rip that Old Testament out of your Bible and toss it out the window. Jesus changed that. You don't need it anymore. Or the law doesn't really count anymore. It's just for historical value. But now that Jesus has come, it's all grace. The Ten Commandments don't even count anymore. That's how many Christians might view this and come to this. But I think there's something more going on here. Because Jesus tells us over and over again to obey the law. Jesus tells us that he has not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. So, what's going on? I think it's that the Jews, the Jewish leaders here, miss Jesus because they don't think they need him. You see, they had developed a view of God that allowed them to earn good standing with God without a savior. And this is what we call legalism. Now, when I use that word, we have to be careful to define it biblically. Because for many people, just talking about the law makes you a legalist. 
Just caring about the law makes you a legalist. But that can't be so. Because the law comes from God. It reflects his character. Paul tells us that the law is holy and good in Romans 7. And Jesus was careful to keep all the law. We're told this over and over again by Paul, by Peter, by John. Legalism is not being serious about God's law. You know, often that's what people think. They think that they have the perfect understanding of the law of God. And if you understand God's law a little bit less seriously than they do, then you think anything goes in your sinner. And if you understand God's law a little bit more strictly than they do, you're a legalist and a Pharisee. But God's law is not the enemy. Sin is. Grace does not negate the law. It fulfills it. You see, Jesus obeyed the law where we did not. And God in his grace applies Jesus' record to us. In Christ, you have obeyed all of the law all of the time as you are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. It's not that God says, I don't really care what you've done. It doesn't matter to me. He looks at you in Christ and says, you are perfectly obedient in Christ. And so what legalism actually is, is believing you can earn God's favor by your obedience. It's not just thinking about the law or talking about the law. It's seeing the law as a means to an end. It's saying, I can obey the law and do that sufficiently that God will love me because of it. Legalism is self-righteousness. It's thinking you can measure up to God's standard. And you do that by thinking that you are better than you are and that God is less than he is. That his standard is not as high as the Bible makes it. The legalist measures his actions by his own standard. He is the judge of how good he is. It is a self-awarded righteousness. Now, this should not be unfamiliar to you because we see this everywhere around us today. People think they're good because they meet a standard that they themselves set. You see this if you've ever interacted with anyone on any social media outlet. They will tell you what the standard is, and it just happens to be the standard that they've met, and then they will explain how you fail to meet their standard. What they think is important is the only thing that's important. This is not limited to the religious sphere. Legalism is making your own law, but... Also essential to legalism is bringing God down to our standard. The legalist has to make up his own rules and apply them to the law. And that's exactly what we see going on here. You see, the Pharisees did this with the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment says, you shall not work on the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath holy unto the Lord. On it you shall do no work. And even though the fourth commandment is the longest of the Ten Commandments, that was insufficient for the Pharisees. You see, they said, how do we know if you're working? And so they created 
39 categories of work. And in the 39 categories of work, they created several thousand instances to fill those categories. And the 39th category is what we see here. It's like when I was a lawyer at a law firm, we had a law library. And what happens in the federal government is Congress passes laws. And you know politicians, they'll never use 10 words where 150 will do. But what Congress usually does is they pass a law giving authority to an administrative agency to carry out the intentions of the law. And so the agency then pr produces regulations by the dozens, by the hundreds, by the thousands. And every year they publish them in something called the Federal Registry. And that takes up dozens of books that may relate to just a few laws. It's a regulation upon regulation upon regulation. And that's what the religious leaders did here. You see, the 39th category of work was carrying something from one place to another place. It didn't matter whether you were carrying something to be sold, whether you were trying to make a profit, whether you were actually working. That made it work. However, if what you were carrying, a mat, had a person on it, as we see later in the Gospels, that wasn't work. Because technically you were carrying the person and not the mat. But if the person got off the mat, then you were working and violating the fourth commandment. Hopefully your head is already dizzy from that. You see, that's what they're doing here. The legalist makes up rules so he doesn't have to look at the heart. It was cut and dry for them. It didn't matter that the man had been healed. It didn't matter that he wasn't really working. It was a violation of section 39, paragraph 3, subparagraph 10 of how not to break the Sabbath. End of discussion. The key was that they had to accuse him of breaking the rules so that they could be righteous for keeping them. They could check the box, not working. They weren't carrying something from one place to another place. They were righteous. And in this, they missed the Messiah right in front of them. Do you see how they miss the substance of what's going on here? This is why Jesus said that they strained at a gnat or a bug. And they swallowed a camel. Now there's a visual for you. You would think that they would want to know about someone who could heal a long paralyzed man. That they'd want to introduce him to other paralyzed people. That they'd want others to be blessed. But that wasn't important to them. No. They did not want their rulemaking and keeping upset. Verse 16 reminds us that they did not like any of the things that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath. And it's here that we first read of them planning to kill Jesus. Partly because of that. Now, can you imagine that? They get together and they plot to murder Jesus in direct violation of the sixth commandment because Jesus has told someone else to do something against section 39, 
paragraph 3, subparagraph 10 of their regulations. This is dangerous for us today also. Because we can set up rules so we can follow them and decide that God is pleased with us because of it. Now, they could be religious rules, or they could even be life rules. If I'm nice, God will love me and let me into heaven. If I support my family and have a great family, God will love me because of that. If I obey my parents and do everything my parents tell me to do, I clean my plate, I clean my room, then God will love me and that's all I need. If I get a good job and I provide for people and others, God will love me. The great danger here is not that any of these things are bad. The danger is that we focus on them and we miss Jesus. We need to always be looking for Jesus. So we've seen now how people can miss Jesus. Those who are blessed by Jesus can focus on the blessing and miss him. Those who think they can be good enough for God that they don't need Jesus, so they miss him. Now, it's important for us to see Jesus so that we don't miss him. The Jewish leaders are all upset about this Sabbath business. They had their detailed rules, and this man was breaking them. But worse than that, Jesus told him to break the rules. He had to be stopped. This can't go on any longer. After all, what's a healing in the face of someone breaking a detailed regulation of the Sabbath? So they confront Jesus. And John tells us that they persecuted Jesus for doing these things. And this is a very vivid word that John uses. It means to harass someone, to drive them out, to pursue them, to run after them with hostile intent. In their mind, Jesus could not be from God because he didn't keep their rules. And their rules are what are important to God. Look at Jesus' answer to them in verse 17. Now, we might have expected Jesus to find common ground with them. To say something like, listen, I love the Sabbath too. Let me explain what I was trying to do. He could have tried to fix their misunderstanding and misapplication of the fourth commandment. But do you see, Jesus doesn't do that. That would have been a legitimate avenue. Instead, he challenges them. In verse 17, but Jesus answered them. And the word answer there is a very specific kind of word. It means to give a legal answer in a court context. He's not just speaking. He's giving a defense of himself and his actions. And the answer that he gives makes it clear that he is God. My father is working until now, and I am working. So many people today want to pretend that Jesus is a nice teacher who never really claimed to be God. They say it's his followers who did that. Don't blame Jesus for that. He's just a good teacher that has good thoughts. But here, Jesus is not only clear in the way he states it, the Jews certainly understood that. Look at verse 18. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You didn't say, my father, in these days. 
You might say our Father, but you didn't call God your Father. You didn't have that kind of a relationship with God. We miss that because we can say our Father only because of Jesus' work. Without Jesus' work, you could never call God your Father. You can call God your Father because of Jesus' work, and you are united to Christ, and Christ becomes your brother. That is why you have access to God. But not at this point. By calling God my Father, Jesus was making a declaration about a special relationship he had with God, his equality with God, and this is a very big deal. Jesus was telling them, and us, that he's God. You have to see that if you don't want to miss Jesus. If you don't see that Jesus is God, you will miss him. You can't have the Jesus that you design. There's only one Jesus. He is God himself. He is the Lord over all creation, including you. He doesn't exist to make your life better or to fix things for you. He is the one before whom you will stand and have to give an account. So, so what does that mean then for you and me? Well, part of Jesus' answer is helpful to us. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Now what does that mean? The Jews understood that God continued to work after the work of creation. We had that same understanding from the scriptures. We call it God's work of providence. That it's not a coincidence that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That it's not a coincidence that the seasons come in due course. That it's not a coincidence that the atmosphere remains with exactly the right proportion of oxygen to nitrogen. That God is upholding all of creation by his mighty power. But do you see what Jesus does here? He applies that to himself. My father is working, and so am I. So how is Jesus working? Well, certainly Jesus is the one who upholds all things, but I think it also relates to the larger story that we have here. Jesus works so that we don't have to work. Now, don't go home and quit your job. Don't go home and quit school. That's not what I mean. It's the context of what we see here in the story. Jesus works our salvation so we don't have to work for our salvation. Our hope is not that we can make up the rules and then keep them. Our hope is that Jesus has worked to earn our salvation and that he continues to work for us. That's who Jesus is. Now you might think it would be hard to miss Jesus. Especially in a church. But the problem is that we let ourselves get in the way. We focus too much on our circumstances. We compare ourselves to other people. And we think we can make up our own rules. We think we get to decide why God should love us. Why we should be rewarded. But that's not how it works. Instead of being like the man in the story who was healed and forgetting that Jesus is the one who heals and saves, 
we must remember that we owe everything to Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings you have. Just remember they're not a sign of how good you are or how worthy you are. Your only hope is Jesus. Don't miss him. Let's pray.